0: We are in the midst of a a short sermon series on the core values of First Alliance Church, uh, which are those priorities that we have as a body of believers here in Lexington that that give us our special identity. Uh, We've already talked about uh, our emphasis on discipleship. We've talked about authenticity, being real with God and one another. Uh, We talked last week about compassion, how we bear one another's burdens and look to bear the burdens of others. And um, of course, these things should really be true of every church, um, but we look at them at First Alliance as those things which, which are distinctive to us. These are characteristics that we are particularly uh, concerned about. They are the, the guardrails within which we plan and within which we grow and, and, and serve Christ. So these, these are the things that help us remember who we are as a church. And today, we're up to core value number four, which is multi-generational ministry. And, of course, that is a mouthful, right? Two words, ten syllables. This is, the, this is the core value that messes up the spacing on the index card, basically, and on the, on the poster. Multi-generational ministry. There's a lot there. Now, there's a much cooler way and shorter way to say it today. You can just use the term multi-gen, right? At First Alliance, we are multi-gen. We could say that. Now, that expression is either too cool for me or too dorky for me. I'm not sure which. So, you can use it if you want to, but this this generation Xer is is going to stick with the long version for now. Multi-generational ministry. What does that mean? Well, um, it means, of course, that you have people from different generations as part of your church, and that seems simple enough, and it may seem like a no-brainer. You might want to say, well, why wouldn't every church be a multi-generational church? Or... Or, you know, what why wouldn't you want to have a multi-generational church? Well, let me tell you something. This isn't this is this is something I have never taken for granted and you shouldn't either. We are incredibly blessed at First Alliance Church to have the generational diversity that we do in this fellowship. It is truly a gift of God's grace, and I mean that. It is all of Him, and we are so blessed to have this. There are churches that would do almost anything to have the kind of age representation that we have here, and I consider myself, for one, incredibly fortunate to be pastoring a church like this that has this kind of representation. And you might say, well, that's great, yes, but, but how did multi-generational rise to the level of a core value? I mean, is it that important to have a multi-generational church? To be, I, I would say it is. I believe it is, and I believe it needs to be intentionally recognized and intentionally guarded and cultivated if we're going to keep it. And more importantly, I believe that it's biblical, and I want to kind of work that out with you a little bit today, because you might say, well, how is that? Where in the Bible does it say that a local church is supposed to have multiple generations. Well, to be honest, this one's a little bit trickier than the other four core values because multi-generational ministry for the church is not so much commanded in the Bible as it is universally assumed and strongly implied that the church should be multi-generational. When you read um, Timothy and Titus, for instance, when you read those pastoral epistles, which largely are just about life in the local church… Uh, You will see the church contains a mix there of older men, younger men, older women, younger women, And, and this situation provides both some subtle challenges for the church as well as massive opportunities for spiritual growth as the generations rub shoulders with one another. In John's first letter, 1 John, he explicitly addresses older men, whom he calls fathers, and then younger men. There are places in Acts that we see when whole families come to Christ at the same time and are incorporated into the church. And so it's quite, quite clear that the church from the beginning was an institution in which all generations were involved and all generations were somehow active. And I'm sure that you can very easily imagine some of the advantages that come with having a church with multiple generations. For instance, let's say you're a young couple just got married recently, and now the honeymoon's over and some things are getting a little bit rocky, you're starting to have some some bumpy places in your marriage. Where are you going to go for wisdom and godly advice? To another young couple? Probably not. You're probably going to look for someone, maybe at least a generation ahead of you, who has been through some of these tunnels and come out the other side. Or if you're a middle-aged couple and Your adult children are starting to stray away from the Lord or stray from you. Wouldn't it be nice to have maybe an older couple who can take a longer view of the situation and maybe help you see your problem in perspective, and they've seen God's faithfulness in this situation over the long haul? Or wouldn't it even be nice maybe to talk to some of the young people or the young couples in the church, and they might be able to tell you where your kids are coming from? And chances are they're having issues with their own parents, and you can tell them where their parents are coming from. So you see how it works both ways. If you're an elderly person in the church and your grandkids just gave you an iPad and you can't get that stupid thing to log on to the church's webpage to watch the service when you can't come to church, you'd better have access to a young person. And of course, that's maybe a silly one, but it's a very practical one, and there are a ton of other very practical advantages to a multi-generational church. And yet, and yet, in the late 20th century, so maybe 40, 50, 60 years ago, Some things happened in the church. Some developments took place. And these were very well-intentioned things. But they tended to work strongly against the idea of a multi-generational church fellowship. One of these developments was called the church growth movement the church growth movement. There were a lot of very good things about this movement, the goal of which was, after all, to maximize the number of people getting saved and coming into the church, coming into God's kingdom. But one assumption that the church growth movement made was that people like to hang around people that are like them. Therefore, the way to grow the church, the way to get these people to come to church was to have a church for people that were just like them, where they could be with the people that they're most comfortable with. Wouldn't they be more likely to go to a church where everybody was like them? And that's probably the case. And so you had churches who would reach out specifically to urban professionals or to families with teens or to blue-collar workers or to young couples with little kids. And they would gear everything they did toward that target group, especially with new church plants. And the advice was, know who your target population is because if you don't aim at a target, you won't hit anything. So you've got to have a target. Now, what happened was, To the extent that these churches actually succeeded in hitting their target, too often what resulted was kind of a distorted, lopsided version of the church. It was missing a few things. In particular, it was missing the input and the meaningful representation of some of the other generations. And the church found it very hard, if not impossible, to obey places like Titus chapter 2 where it says that the older generations are supposed to teach the younger generations and they missed out on a lot of the blessing of full community. Now, of course, some of the really big churches were able to get around this because they had the money and they had the programs. They could just reach out to multiple generations. So they would solve the problem by sort of dividing up their church into different pieces. Now, the other development that happened around the same time was, as you know, the music changed. A lot of more modern music started coming into the church, and churches weren't singing the old hymns anymore, and so what, what happened is the church would say, well, we need, we need a cool kind of hip service for the young people, so we'll have a contemporary service, and then we'll have a traditional service, and the old people can go to that, and they found out they could even grow faster if they had kid church and youth church as well as adult church. And so what happened to your family was the generations get separated from one another the minute you walk in the door, and you don't see each other until the ride to Cracker Barrel after the service is over. Now I'm going to tell you straight up, this is the kind of scenario that First Alliance Church is trying not to get sucked into. We are trying to avoid this. But let me take you to a scripture passage that might give you some idea of why. Okay, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, book of Ephesians chapter 4. We're just going to read verses 1 to 7. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, 1 to 7 is going to give us uh, both the the theological rationale, the biblical reason, if you will, for multigenerational ministry, and then it's also going to give us at least one specific way in which multigenerational ministry will make us better disciples of Jesus if we're willing to let it. So let's just read these seven verses starting at the beginning of Ephesians 4. This is Paul speaking to the church. But, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, if you're looking for a biblical truth that undergirds the idea of multigenerational ministry, perhaps the most obvious one is Paul's reminder here that there is only one body. In other words, there's only one church. There's one church. There's not a kid church and a youth church and a boomer church and a Gen Z church and an old person's church we're all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one church in Christ Jesus. Why couldn't the local church be an expression of that unity? And if you think about it, there is a ton of generational, intergenerational tension today in the world, right? We've got the boomers, the the Gen Zers, and you know, okay boomer. You heard that one? We're getting on each other now. The millennials, everyone's ripping on each other constantly now while the Xers kind of stand over in the corner and try not to get noticed. And these groups, these different age groups seem to have very divergent sets of values and very little in common sometimes. Well, can you think of any institution in the world, in your experience, that brings all these generations together? Go ahead, try to think of one. I can think of one, the church. Now, I suppose you could extend this to other communities of faith like mosques and synagogues. But I would argue that the Christian church, in particular, as described in the New Testament, deliberately, deliberately pursues unity and maturity through diversity, especially diversity in spiritual giftedness, but also in ethnicity, in socioeconomic status, and also in age. Our differences are not a hindrance, they are an advantage. They're not a bug, they're a feature. As the diverse generations work together in unity in the local church, we can leverage these differences to complete the mission that God has given us. See, Paul goes on to talk after this, and the verses right after this, about how God has distributed gifted church leaders throughout the body. In other places, he talks about how God has distributed spiritual gifts to each Christian. But as we think about how God gives a measure of grace to each one, as it says here, I want you to consider something else. Consider how the Lord has also distributed resources, different resources, differently among the different generations in the church. For instance, which generation has the most money? So, those 18 or 19 year olds, right? No, they're flat broke. Try to have a church full of college students. Which generation has the most energy? Which generation has the most free time? Which generation has the least free time? Which generation has the most wisdom and experience? Which generation has the greatest willingness to try something new? Which generation tends to have the most influential positions in the community? Which generation has the most exposure to other cultures? All of these things are very unequally divided among the church, among the different generations, right? But completing the Great Commission and calling people to Christ from all nations, both here and around the world, requires all of these things, and so we are going to need each other if we're going to get the job done. And yet, sometimes, I've been speaking kind of in functional terms, I realize that, but sometimes the the intergenerational nature and the multigenerational nature of the church has some other benefits as well that are a little deeper and a little more personal and very important. As I have shared with you before, I did a lot of growing spiritually when I was in college. And when I was in college, it was great to lock arms with other college students who were trying to follow Jesus, and it was great to be part of a group like InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and I was. And every college student that's going away, leaving town, I tell them, please look for a fellowship group to become part of so you can be with other Christian college students. It's important. But I will tell you this, in that environment, when you're in that kind of parachurch environment with fellowship groups and all at that age, the local church usually becomes an afterthought. Most of the students from InterVarsity at, at, at my college, even if they went to church, they would just walk to the big Presbyterian church across the street on Sunday and a big mass and they didn't really get too involved. But Dawn and I and a few others drove a, a few extra miles to a medium small Baptist church a little farther from campus. And this church started a modest little ministry where church members of any age and church families of any age could adopt a college student and kind of hang out with the college student, have more for meals and that sort of thing. And the family that adopted me, and they later adopted Don too, really committed themselves to that relationship, and I am forever thankful for that. Because in that phase of life, when you're that age and you're away from home especially, it is hard to overestimate the impact of a home-cooked meal or a night of playing Uno and eating Mississippi mud cake, or learning how to play dart ball, or just being around little kids, or watching a young couple interact as husband and wife while they try to bring up their kids right and, and let you into their lives. Ultimately, we kept up with this family. Um, a few of you have met them, actually. They've been here a couple times, and um, our, Their daughter walked in our wedding, and I did the, the wedding for their other daughter. And and my idea of what it means to walk with Jesus was made a lot more real by knowing them, even as Dawn and I were kept tethered to the local church in a meaningful way during college, all because someone thought to prioritize multi-generational ministry in their fellowship. One body, one faith, one Lord, one spirit, one church, See, it's not just a theological concept, folks. This can be a vital reality in our church, in our lives. Have you ever thought, have you ever thought about how you can reach across a generation to bless someone older or younger than you in our church fellowship? Have you ever thought about intentionally doing that? Pastor TJ is is currently working on some events for men and women that are going to be starting in March where some of this might have a chance to happen. And so I hope you'll participate in those, but, but you don't need to wait for March to start thinking and praying about this and looking for opportunities to reach out across the generations, whether up or down. It may be as easy as opening up your dinner table. But I did promise you that, that there was one specific life application baked into these verses that could make us a better disciple through multi-generational ministry. And it's actually hidden in a little phrase at the end of verse 2. Where after it talks about patience and gentleness and humility, it says this, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. I think the King James says forbearing one another. A more down-to-earth translation would probably say this, putting up with one another. Because that's kind of what the word means. The word speaks of enduring and committing to stick to a relationship with the understanding that there are probably going to be some challenges along the way. That's what the word means. Stick with a relationship, even though it's going to present some challenges to you. And if you think about it, multi-generational ministry definitely brings lots of challenges to a church, and those challenges have torn many churches apart. About 30 years ago, there's a little church history here. About 30 years ago, a few years before my time, uh, First Line's Church went through some pretty radical changes. Some of you were here when that happened, and you remember. Um, because what happened was a number of folks kind of migrated here from a couple other local churches, right around the same time, around 1996. And some of these folks brought with them a distinctly more modern approach than First Alliance Church was used to, especially in the area of worship and music. And it would have been very possible back then, and it happened at a lot of churches, it would have been very possible for the powers that be to have dug in their heels and said no to any changes at all. But that didn't happen. That didn't happen. I am so thankful to the older generation at this church that that didn't happen. And I think the reason that didn't happen is because enough people at First Alliance Church loved Jesus more than they loved having everything their way. The result of this over time is not only a church that is generationally diverse, but a church that has a real mix of traditional and contemporary elements, not only in the worship service, but in other areas as well. And I consider this to be a strength. Not only because it reflects the unity of the church, and not only because it maybe broadens our appeal to people of different ages to have all the generations here, but there's another reason as well. And I'm going to say this to you as lovingly as I possibly can. That's a good way to get your attention, isn't it, to say something like that. Here's what I want to say to you. I don't want anybody here to be totally happy and content with the way things are done at First Alliance. I'm serious. I'm not saying you need to be miserable and complaining all the time. That would not be good. But there should be at least one element of what we do here that forces you to go against your preferences, against your tastes, and probably against the way you may have done things in the past, because it is both loving and spiritually beneficial to yield your own agenda to that of another person. The American church has become seriously infected with a consumer mentality today that treats church like a usable and maybe even disposable commodity rather than a local expression of the very bride of Christ that calls for a serious commitment to deep relationship and mutual accountability. And learning to live with something that you don't particularly like and consciously bearing with those you disagree with about it is one of the best ways I know to fight that consumeristic tendency. So if you are too happy here, let me know, <laughs> and I will try to do something to fix that. Well, th- think about it. Here's just some examples, any time, any time, and I know it happened today, any time you willingly and worshipfully sing a song that was written in 1822 when you'd rather be singing a song that was written in 2022, you are making the bride of Christ more beautiful. And it goes both ways. Anytime you sing a song that was written in 2022 when you'd rather be singing a song that was written in 1822, you're doing the same thing. The bride of Christ is becoming more beautiful. When a handful of people who are, as far as I can tell, all older than I am, and I'm getting old, And they could be going to a church with permanent seating. They come here every Sunday morning to set up 400 chairs. Also, young people can play basketball on Duck, Duck, Goose during the week. You know what? That makes the bride of Christ more beautiful. When your kids join you for the first half hour of the worship service, yes, even though it's distracting for you, and even though it's probably sometimes a little bit boring for them, That makes the bride of Christ more beautiful. Now you say, how? This better be worth it. First of all, if little kids or elementary age kids see their parents actually communing with and worshiping God, do you think that would make a difference in how they view the Lord? Secondly, there's a chance, and I admit it's a pretty small chance, but it's a chance that your kids will pick up on the fact that what we do here is not all about them that it's okay to put up with something you don't love in order for somebody else to have something they do love, and that there's something bigger going on here. And just maybe, just maybe a seed will be planted against the consumer mentality and for the idea of loving and prioritizing others as we attempt to serve our kids without spoiling them. Now, as as we get ready to wind down and head into communion, let me point you to a little bigger picture. When I talk to the senior citizens in our church, and we talk about the church, as you can imagine, they have a lot of opinions, right? And they're very willing to share their opinions. But it's not all mumbly, grumbly stuff. There is some. But I I will say this. One thing that our our senior citizens will tell me, almost without fail, they'll say this. I love seeing all these young people in our church. They all say that. They say it just blesses my heart. Now, I know partly that's because of the energy and excitement that young people tend to bring to a group, but I I know it goes deeper than that too, and here's why. I was reading this week in in Hebrews chapter 11, and if you know anything about Hebrews chapter 11, you know, sometimes that's called like the hall of faith chapter. It's where it goes through and looks at the faithful deeds and the ways all all these people in the Old Testament express their faith in God. And there's a section, and then right after the section, there's a big long section on Abraham, and then right after that, there's a little section where it talks about Isaac, Jacob and Joseph and their faith. And there are a lot of things that these three guys could be commended for with regard to their faith, especially Joseph. If you think about the life of Joseph and all the stuff he went through, but in each case, the way these three men exercised faith and the way the the author of Hebrews remembers them for their faith, the way they did it was in speaking about the next generation right before they died. In speaking about the next generation right before they died, that's how they exercised their faith. And you see in the end of of Hebrews 11, it says that it was revealed to these saints that they weren't living just for their time, but they were living for something better that was coming. It was basically revealed to them that they were playing a part in act one of the great drama of redemption. Redemption. They were in Act 1, and they were okay with that because they knew there was going to be an Act 2. They knew that God was going to continue the story through their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids and so on until the coming of the promised one. And then Jesus came. And when Jesus came, He lived among us. He died for our sins. He rose again. That was the beginning of Act 2. And that's where you and I come into the picture. We are in Act 2, Scene 53 or something like that. But the story isn't over yet. Each generation still has its part to play, and, and one of the great faith builders for the oldest generations in our church is when they see God working in the lives of young people, even though it doesn't look exactly the same, but they see God working in the lives of young people, and it reminds them that God is still the same God, He's still faithful, and that the story isn't over yet, and... And that as they pass from this earth, they can joyfully and confidently pass the baton of faith to the next generation. And then don't forget, one of the most overlooked parts of the gospel is this. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back to this earth. History has an end. There will be a final scene And as you and I run our part in this race for our generation, we need to let our young people know that this is their race too. There's one spirit, there's one church, one body, one God, one Savior, one baptism, one faith. There's one mission. There's one race that we're running. And they have their own lap to run in this race. And maybe, just maybe, just maybe, and this is our blessed hope as we get older, Maybe our kids and grandkids will get to run the anchor lap, and they will get to hand the baton back to Jesus. Psalm 145 says this, one generation will commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. First Alliance family, let's keep this relay race going until the very end.